Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights. Show number 60. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa today for details. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, it's a very bit of a cold morning. I'm recording this on a Wednesday morning. Fingers crossed you'll get this Wednesday night. There has been a few little bits of hiccups with the show getting out, the last couple of shows, and the reason it's all been down to have been correlating why answers asking, I've been asking why, why, why has the show not been going out on time? And it is me. <laughs> I've been putting the wrong dating. Yes, 2008 still, I'm still on 2008 time. So I think that's the reason why Fred's and Amy's the last time took a little bit while longer to get a move on. It was because it was all locked up and locked into the site and everything like that. So yes, apologies for that. What have we got coming up on the show? Well, a bit of a fun-packed show. I will give you a heads up. Not really an editorial, just me saying hello, which is basically this. New writer of Poetry coming, Anne Schwader. So hello, Anne. Welcome to The Sofa. We have another beardy book review. Fact Fiction comes from Mr. Matt Sanborn-Smith. Main fiction tonight, none other than Gene Wolfe. Yes, narrated by our good friend Larry Santuro as well, so look out for that. Fantastic. That is Oral Delights, show number 60. So editorial is just really me giving a little kind of bit of feedback from, which is a bit of a cop-out, from last week's show. You know, I got everyone to kind of just tell us about, you know, or start mentioning what everybody else likes. You know, and I mentioned, like, I love kind of fresh coffee and I love real ales. Ho-ho! The sofa community thrives on real ale. Yes! <laughs> everybody Everybody that sent an email, well, I like a bit of a beer, Tony. <laughs> We're all half sloshed all the time. So look out for, I'm going to do a, like, a private members show, if anyone wants to kind of join up there as a good excuse. I'm going to do one on my little collection of beers, because I'm now having to, I'm drinking my bottles, and now having to kind of put them back so I can talk about them. <laughs> the cupboard's full of empty bloody beer bottles. So yes... Thank you, everyone who sent in emails about what people like, what people get up to, apart from listening to kind of Starships over and science fiction. It's been much appreciated. So I think we'll kick off with 
a new little bit of poetry by Anne Schwerer. Anne K. Schwerer, I hope. Anne, have I got that right or wrong? <laughs> Anne K. Schwerer lives and writes in Westminster, Colorado, where she also volunteers at the local branch library. Her latest poetry collection, the Lovecraftian sonnet sequence in the Yadith time, was published by Mythos Books in 2007. She has received several honourable mentions in the year's best fantasy and horror for her poetry and dog fiction. She is a member of Science Fiction Writers of America, Horror Writers Association and the Science Fiction Poetry Association. Signed up to the lot there, Anne. Well done. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. On Any Given Midnight by Anne K. Schwader These stars will never shine so bright as they do now. Our future lies darker and lonelier every night. Whatever fraction of delight still flickers dimly in our eyes, these stars will never shine so bright. Their galaxies in panicked flight all vacating this scrap of sky grown darker, lonelier every night. I wish I may, I wish I might, but that's as tedious as why these stars will never shine so bright as they once did. Blame physics blight, that energy its math implies. Darker, read lonelier, every night. Our dreams hold less of hope than fright, too drained of wonder to deny these stars will never shine so bright. Darker and lonelier, all our nights. First published in Strange Horizons, 2005. There you go. Links to, there's two sites Anne's got going in the podosphere there, or in the web world. I will put links onto her blog and her website. Please pop over there and say hello. Narration Day has been provided by Diane Severson. Diane, thank you so much. Do pop over to Diane's blog. I will put a link on the site as well to say thank you for a fantastic reading. Diane, you're a star. Next up, Beardy Book Review. Sean, how are we doing, sir? Hello, and welcome to another Beardy Book Review. Except that this time I'm not actually going to be reviewing a book. Huh? Let me explain. I know that a lot of you absorb your sci-fi in the form of audiobooks rather than the traditional paper and ink method. Personally, I prefer paper books, but reading them while driving is a tad inconvenient, so I do use audiobooks in the car. And so this time around, I'd like to review something audio-related. Not exactly sci-fi, and not exactly stories. Music. Yes, I know, Beardy seems to have gone off his head, but bear with me, and you'll see that there is reason behind my madness. Most of the science fiction fans of my acquaintance tend to have a rather good sense of humour, and often it is a sense of humour that delights in the surreal, the slightly odd and off-the-wall, and a sometimes satirical approach to the subject matter. Many science fiction fans like music, and many, many science fiction fans have some connection with technology. Either they work in an IT-related job, like I do, or they use their computers as part of their hobby, whether it is digital photography, electronic music, or even playing games. And of course, many households have at least one computer in them nowadays, even if it's only used for email and web browsing and storing the occasional recipe. And almost every computer user has stories of problems that they have had with technology over the years. So, what would you say to music that combines many of these themes together? 
Well, there is such music, and it comes from the almost impossibly talented mind of Mr. Jonathan Coulton. Now, if you've ever listened to the BBC Radio 4 Friday evening comedy programme, The Now Show, then you'll have heard writer and performer Mitch Benn doing his comic songs about news and current affairs. Well, Jonathan Coulton does a similar thing, except that many of his songs tend to have some kind of geeky element in them, often science, technology, science fiction or horror-related themes. He's done songs about loving a laptop, a Bond-esque supervillain in his secret mountain lair, the miracle of DNA, the dangers of bacteria, a computer programmer falling in love with the beautiful receptionist at the office, a family being exiled to a distant asteroid by robots and sending a cheery Christmas message home to their friends, the story of Benoit Mandelbrot and the formulas that he discovered that create the beautiful and incomprehensible graphics in what we nowadays call the Mandelbrot set, a jilted college kid dreaming of the future when he'll take over the world with his invincible robot army, and even one song unforgettably entitled Big Dick Farts a Polka, and believe me, I'm not kidding on that one. Mr. Coulton used to be a technology worker, a computer programmer, and his songs tend to be full of references to geek culture, beautifully written, often with rather clever wordplay in the lyrics, and they often have this feeling of the love of technology combined with exasperation at some aspect of technology and often at the general stupidity of the human race. And he seems to tap into the same kind of somehow future yet retro technology feel that you get in some cyberpunk stories, although they of course often take themselves far too seriously, whereas Jonathan Coulton seems to take very little seriously, and certainly not himself. A couple of years ago he launched a project called Thing A Week, in which he undertook to write and record a new piece of music every week for a year. He did so, and the result is an amazing collection of songs in a number of musical styles, with all kinds of subject matter, many of them humorous songs, some of them sad or wistful, all wonderfully recorded. Another link to sci-fi is that he wrote the song Still Alive that plays over the closing credits of the computer game Portal from Valve Software. The original arrangement of the song has the lyrics sung by the voice artist that played the computer character GLaDOS, which stands for Genetic Lifeform and Disk Operating System, which is essentially the computerised main villain in the game. There is an alternative arrangement available with the lyrics sung by Jonathan Coulton himself. Almost all of Jonathan Coulton's songs are available for download from his website at www.jonathancoulton.com and can all be previewed directly from the website. Each track costs very little and of course all the money paid for the tracks goes to the writer enabling him to make something of a living and keep writing songs. I bought the complete boxed set, although of course as it's a download there isn't actually a box, uh, which contains all of his original writings, uh, and that's a lot of songs. You can also find most of his music at iTunes, but to be honest it isn't worth it. iTunes charges more, and the tracks are protected with digital rights management software, whereas if you buy them from the artist's own website you get higher bitrate, higher quality recordings with no DRM at a lower price, and you know that all the money goes to the person that produced the work. Mr. Coulton has produced a large body of work that I am sure will appeal to many sci-fi fans. It's available at low cost, the recording and mixing quality is uniformly excellent, and an interesting thing about it 
is that all of his original compositions have been released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. Phew. What that actually means, stripped of the jargon, is that you are free to share his music with others, to modify it, to create remixes or new works based on it, and distribute them as long as you credit the original artist and distribute any derivative works under the same license. And of course you can't do any of those things with any commercial purpose in mind, so you can't make money from the original author's work or any derivative of it. This has of course led to a large number of fans of his work producing remixes, cover versions, and even some excellent fan videos, rather in the same way that some science fiction fans produce their own fan fiction for fanzines, fan websites and so on, based on stories or characters from existing science fiction authors. On the Bearded Review scale, hastily recalibrated to cope with this episode's non-book content, I'd have to say that overall I give Jonathan Coulton 9 out of 10. It would have been 10 out of 10, except that the actual sci-fi content of his total body of work isn't as high as it could be. But I'm sure that more sci-fi songs will be forthcoming, especially if you write to him via his website and blog and ask him or suggest some themes to him. He seems very responsive to fans. So, to finish, I'd like to remind you that the website to go to is www.jonathancoulton.com and from there you can also get links to a lot of these fan-produced materials such as videos, some of which are truly excellent. And that you should consider paying for some of his tracks so that he can, can afford to continue producing these excellent works in much the same way that a number of us fans of Starship Sofa contribute via a monthly subscription so that Tony can afford to continue his excellent work with the continuing voyages of the good ship Sofa. Now to play us out, I'd like to introduce a track from Jonathan Coulton, which is based on a little conversation between a couple of workers in an office, but with a twist. Until next time, here on Starship Sofa, this is Sean on the Beardy Book and this time audio review. Thank you. Hey Tom, it's Bob. From the office down the hall It's good to see you, buddy How have you been? Things have been okay for me Except that I'm a zombie now I really wish you'd let us in I think I speak for all of us When I say I understand Why you folks might hesitate Submit to our demand But here's an FYI You're all gonna die Screaming All we want to do is eat your brains We're not unreasonable I mean no one's gonna eat your eyes All we want to do is eat your brains We're at an impasse here Compromise. If you open up the door, we'll all come inside and eat your brain. I don't want to nitpick, Tom, but is this really your plan? Spend your whole life locked inside a mall. Maybe that's okay for now, but someday you'll be out of guns, then you'll have to make the call. I'm not surprised to see you haven't thought it through enough. You know
never had the head for all that bigger picture stuff. But Tom, that's what I do, and I plan on eating you slowly. I mean, no one's gonna eat your eyes. All we wanna do is eat your brains. We're at an impasse here. Maybe we should compromise. You open up the door. We'll all come inside and eat your brains. I'd like to help you, Tom. John, thank you very much for that. That is much appreciated, sir. So I think we can dip straight into our good friend, Matt Sanborn-Smith. Matt, trolling the internet there, sir. What have you? What gems have you dug up? Recession is here, belts are tightening, and hard decisions have to be made. Do you eat cat food this week, or do you let the cat eat its own food and then eat the cat? Fear not, eager reader, on the magical land of the internet where fiction is free, no sacrifices have to be made. After tripping over its own stubby legs for a few weeks, the fiction crawler is back, mi amigos, crawling its way back into your hearts if only to lay its eggs and die there. What I wouldn't do to bring you the fiction crawler would make the postman blush. Fueled on my special formula of ramen noodles boiled in Mountain Dew, or as I like to call it, Mountain Doodles, I shall fill your lives with sparkling entertainment. Last go-around, I did Dead Knots, and this month, it's Lostronaut at NewYorker.com. When the New Yorker runs some honest-to-gosh science fiction, you've got to take notice. Though we party down in our little literary ghetto, unashamed that our shoes don't match, we do have a handful of agents on the inside, the type of folks the literati will take in as one of their own. 
Once accepted by the pack, people like Jonathan Lethem spread our propaganda wide. Set in decaying orbit, Lethem's Lostronaut spins the sad yarn of astronauts and cosmonauts trapped in a space station surrounded by Chinese mines. It's a tale told in emails by an American Janice to her too-far-away love, Chase, of the daily fight for survival, even in the face of certain doom. Besieged by disease, madness, and leaking antifreeze, five little space people struggle to keep on. Reading this at once heartbreaking and hope-inducing story, you realize that these people have about as much of a guarantee as the rest of us. And their victories aren't about saving the world or acing their problems with Heinleinian solutions. Their victories are about doing everything in their power to live one more day, just for the sake of breathing. Just for the sake of thinking ordinary thoughts and helping their fellow man when there's no good reason to hope for anything more. Go read. TTA Press's Transmissions from Beyond at transmissionsfrombeyond.com. Duh is a podcast that sings select stories, and that's not easy to say while wrestling with my lisp, of its print magazines Interzone, Black Static, and Crime Wave. I'm a bit closed-minded about my reading, I'll admit it, and I've only listened to the science fiction stuff here, but all of it's good, and some very good. Case in point, transmission number one, The Algorithm by Tim Akers. A great, oddball world, believable characters, and an intriguing story. The algorithm takes place in a strange land where tiny barrel-like boats full of gears and metalworks float into the lives of people from some unknowable place upriver from them. So what do the people do with all this stuff? Form a religion, of course. They figure the goodies have got to be from God and start putting bits and pieces together, convinced that once whatever the hell it is they're building is completed, everything will be revealed to them. I wanted to say, don't say steampunk. Not every story that has a gear in it is steampunk and I'm really tired of the S-word. But from what I hear, this story is one of a larger cycle that is being referred to as steampunk. Bother. Anyway, one day they pop open one of these barrel boats, and there's a little girl inside. A little girl with a shaky memory who turns the people's assumptions about what's upriver on their heads. Or maybe not. It's hard to change a person's mind when they're invested in an idea. They ask for a sign. They may not like what they get. I made one note to myself after I listened to this story. It read... Very cool. I imagine you'll think so as well. Now hit your back button. It's back to NewYorker.com, this time for Taste of Audio. Yes, we've got two audio tales this month. I had a friend many, many years ago who was a great admirer of the work of Jorge Luis Borges. He'd sometimes say things like, Well, you know, Borges said, and then spring some deeply wise quote on me while I nodded, hopefully not too dumbly, as if to say, Why, of course! Oh, that Borges, he was always getting into stuff. I had no clue. Years later, it was the winter of 2008, and I listened to my first Borges story, and wow, I had to tell you about it. The Gospel According to Mark by Jorge Luis Borges is not necessarily speculative fiction, but you'll appreciate why I recommend this once you listen to it. I think it will appeal to a certain type of genre fan. Even if it doesn't, go listen to it. It's a great story. I got just a glimpse at why this writer is worshipped by some people, and I began to see the light. It takes place in 1920s Argentina when... Espinoza, a visitor to a remote farm, develops a relationship with the farm's foreman and his family. Espinoza's cousin, the owner of the place, goes off to town, and flooding cuts the little farm off from civilization. Espinoza reads to the family from the Gospel according to Mark every evening after dinner, and that's about all he ever reads, because the family doesn't want to hear anything else. Though he's no missionary and they have no real known religion, they become serious converts and treat him with reverence. There's religion, and there's hammering of the non-sexual kind, as well as the other kind, and then there's something more. 
Put on your fiction helmet while listening, because this story will slap you upside the head when you're not paying attention. Stop the Presses, a story by Paolo Bacigalupi that made me smile? What's going on here? You can find his story, The Gambler, at pyresamples.blogspot.com. It's a sneak peek of Lou Anders' new anthology, Fast Forward 2, which promises to be a doozy of a book. The Gambler is the story of a Laotian refugee named Ong, who has made a life for himself in America as a reporter for an online newsfeed. His stories covering environmental collapse are swallowed whole by the lifestyles and scandals of hip-hop stars. As is expected, Boss threatens reporter's career, but the king of the newsbreakers offers Ong a great opportunity to bring his numbers up. It's not a story of good and evil. It's about the choices we make, which make complete sense on one level, but can lead to our destruction on another. Bacigalupi is known for his environmentally-themed stories, and The Gambler does touch on environmental issues, but this story is more about newsertainment in the modern age. It could take place just a couple of years into the future, and it makes a case we're all familiar with, but in a way that feels like he was the first guy to say it. It feels more relevant to the present than anything else I've read by him. Charles Tan and Mia Tijam have set up a site to expose the rest of the world to some great stories from the Philippines over at philippinespeculativefiction.com. I was hoping for some science fiction, but the few stories I read there are all on the fantasy end of speculative fiction. Still in all, give a read to Six from Downtown by Dean Francis Alfar. I imagine that spec fiction writers from all over the globe are influenced by the huge mass of product we in America and the UK produce, but other people do see things differently, and as influenced as Six from Downtown may be, it's nice to explore the little twists that make it its own thing. Six from Downtown is a series of vignettes, six of them, strangely enough, exploring what I'm guessing is a modern-day Manila soaked in elements of the fantastic. We get glimpses into the lives of ordinary people living in what seems to us an extraordinary world. There's the story of a phone jockey turned murderer, a musician who constantly snatches disaster from the jaws of the sublime, and a very exotic dancer. There's a lot of food in this story also, just along the edges. It draws attention to itself in strangeness, at least to my cheeseburger-eating self, though that's not saying much. But even some of you crazy squid-eating listeners might find something new in the fish market in the first part of the story. Mermaid, apparently, is delicious. Trace this one. On SF Signal, I found some info on an anthology by Rich Thornton called Unplugged, The Best of Online Fiction. I thought to myself, say, I like The Best of Online Fiction. Let me take a look-see. There were a couple of things that I saw in the content listing that weren't my cup of joe. We obviously see things differently, but that's okay. That's why he and I are kept in two different bodies. But there was a story listed by Will McIntosh called Link Worlds. I clicked its clicky and was glad that I did. You don't have to go through that dance. You can find Link Worlds at Strange Horizons. I suppose it's science fantasy, I don't know, but it's a fun idea. Imagine the universe is a white sphere and all of the worlds are inside of that sphere. But the worlds aren't in orbit around anything. They just float around, and when they hit the walls of the universe, they bounce off. Sometimes those worlds bounce off each other. This would seem fun and daffy, except houses and people get squished when this happens. Now throw a kid named Tweel into the mix who has no sense whatsoever about some things, but is a superhuman genius about others. He gets a job as assistant navigator for one of those floating planets, and the universe will never be the same again. He sees ways in which the worlds can commune and exchange knowledge in a way they hadn't before, and his ideas spread, sometimes in a bad way. Tweel's got issues. Oh man, does he have issues. He seems to spend half the story either crying or screaming, and you'd think it would drive you away from the story, but it doesn't. I don't say this much because I don't see it much, but this character is actually lovable. As bad guys are piling up planets in an enormous Katamari ball and coming his way, he's actually looking forward to the togetherness. 
He needs a good thrashing, but his love for the people around him is his saving grace. This tale is full of wild ideas, and it's a fun ride. Check it out. It's stories like these, folks, that make you think it's a wonderful internet, with branches of plenty hanging low beneath the weight of golden apples waiting to be picked, and grow once again for the next lucky traveler who also likes to eat precious metal disguised as fruit. Unfortunately, it's back to reality once more, for a little while at least. This is Matthew Sanborn Smith advising you to feed the cat to the dog, because a good-sized dog on the table will put a goose to shame. Good night. Hey, go, Matt. Thank you, sir. What a guy. What a guy. Hope everything is going all right for you, Squire. Do participate in a little bit of the fallen down water. You have my permission. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 35,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for your free audiobook. And if everyone's following along with the Hyperion and the Fall of Hyperion, do pop over there and sample them books as well. You can One of them can be your free download from Audible. I've also had the Audible newsletter in as well and there's some cracking new stuff coming up. On the 20th of this month we have Dan Simmons' Endymion. That comes out and The Rise of Endymion. That was a Hugo nominee as well. Audible's also got Alan Dean Foster, Orphan Star, End of the Matter, Love for Mother Not. Just another Judgment Day by Simon R. Green as well. So a lot to choose from from Audible. So do pop over there and sign yourself up. So next up is the main fiction. Vampire's Kiss by none other than Gene Wolfe. Wow, how cool is that? A story by Gene Wolfe, legendary science fiction fantasy writer. And it is narrated by the man himself, Mr. Larry Santuro. Mr. Santuro has just finished a novella called The Last Scoot at Skidoo's Tap, which he says hopefully will be part of a collection he'd like to get together in the early 2010. Little Girl, his story that was actually narrated on this show, is collecting a few recommendations for a Bram Stoker Award. So fingers crossed, everyone. Yes, fingers crossed for that. That would be fantastic. At the end of January, if everyone's interested, Larry Santuro will be reading at the 57th Street Books near the University of Chicago for their celebration of the 200th anniversary of Edgar Allan Poe's birth. There you go. Very busy man, Larry. Thank you so much for this narration, a fine narration. So, links to Larry's site, and I can't really put a link on to Mr. Gene Wolfe's site, because I'll put a link to his Wikipedia page. I don't think he's got a website. So, the Starship Sova and Oral Delights is very proud to present... The Vampire Kiss by Gene Wolfe Read by Lawrence Santoro This story I had from one of my boys. The boys, boys I find on the streets and boys who were sent to me by others. They're a queer lot. Most have no education, which is good. A few others, of which Tommy is one, were someone's darling child not so long ago. They will keep themselves clean when they can, and speak as properly as any page at court. His sort 
It's the best, when they're not over-timid. He came to me one evening while I was frying some sausages. He sat for a minute or two by the fire before he said, It reminds me of the way they said I might kill her, though I never did, even when I found her grave. I looked around at him, as you may imagine, and I asked whether he'd been advised to kill a lady with sausages. No, sir, he says, with fire. This is the tale, as near as I can remember it. We lodged near the green, sir, he said. I could show you the place. There was a shop below us, a dusty little shop, but on my honour it is the most interesting shop I was ever in, for there are all sorts of things in there, sir, watches, sir, and rings such as you have here. "'Silver teapots, too, and games with the kings and queens, "'and castles and things, all carved of ivory. "'There was a set of false teeth, sir, that came and went like a ghost. "'One day it would be there, and on the next it'd be gone. "'In a day or two it'd be back again. "'There were fire irons and pistols and everything you could imagine. "'Many you couldn't. "'A glass walking stick full of sweets.' I used to stare at it when I was hungry, but I never asked the old man for a sweet. I knew he wouldn't give me one, though he was kind now and then, and would give me a cup of tea or a bun. His wife made the tea, sir, in a big canister sort of thing, bigger than any pot. And it didn't taste like our tea, either. But I would put in a lot of sugar, you know, and I liked it well enough. They were foreign, the old man and his wife were. They talked to each other in a way I couldn't understand. Kind, though. Only they were old and almost dead, and they knew it. I don't think they thought about life much any more, sir, if you follow me. They knew they hadn't much claim to it left and would lose what they had soon enough. Now, my father was nearer dying than they were, but he wasn't like them about it. He was holding on. You could see it, even when he slept. He fought for every breath, and he was tired, sir. Oh, so tired, but brave. His heart wasn't tired, if you take my meaning. Only his body. He wanted to live. No, sir, he was too sick to work, too sick to walk almost. His skin was the color of paper or the handkerchiefs after we've washed them. Mother worked in a shop another woman owned, selling tea. The other woman paid her and gave her a little tea, too. Every day, loose tea, you know, that, that she'd put in her pocket and she'd bring it home. <laughs> that was how we had tea. And good tea it was, too, though we wouldn't have had sugar to put in or, or milk. Then then she was taken sick, too, with, with the thing my father had. Didn't know what it was, only that she couldn't work and there was nothing to eat. And one day, the old foreign woman from the ground floor, the one that made the tea, she came up to see to get the rent. My father, he was a bit stronger then, and he tried to get out of bed. Mother wouldn't let him, and begged him to lie down, went to the door herself, though she was almost too weak to walk. The old woman saw how bad she was, and sat her down, and me with her, and talked to us. She went back to her kitchen, too, and got some meat rolled up in leaves, and gave it to us. We ate it. My mother, she got three, I remember, and, and brought two in to father, and said the old woman had give her five. I'll never forget that. My mother had just one after that, and I had two, but I cut one of mine in two and gave her half. The taste 
It was strange, but so good. I was sorry afterward that I'd done it. The old woman told us a ghost was drinking mother's blood, and father's too. It happened a lot in the country she'd been born in, she said. The ghost would fix upon a person and drink from him until he died and find another after that. They were like a woman who always went to the same green grocer, she said, until he closed and retired to the seaside. Then she would go to another, but sometimes they fixed on a certain family instead of a person. They drink the blood of that family until it was wiped out. She talked about crosses and told my mother to get one and give her some garlic on a string that she put round my father's neck after the old woman had gone. Those would keep him off sometimes for a while. That was what the old woman had said. But the only way to put an end to him forever was to find the body and stake it down so it could not rise again or else burn it. You could tell who they were because they looked so healthy in the grave. She didn't get the rent because we didn't have it. That worried me after, and a dozen times I went to ask the old man if he'd make us go, though I never did. What I did, one thing I did, was to make a cross. I made it of two sticks, tied them together with a string, and I put it over their bed in that little cabinet there where they, they wouldn't see it. I got mother's scissors, too, and opened them to make a cross and put them under their bed. That was another thing the old woman said to, to do, and I did it. My mother didn't sew any more anyway. After that, I would say I was going out to play with the other boys on our street, and I'd go looking for the grave. Now, there were three cemeteries close enough to the green for me to walk. I went to them one after another, walked all round in them looking for a grave that looked like the body had climbed out of it sometimes. No one ever bothered me for doing it, and I'm sure the people who saw me thought I was mourning someone. My clothes were dark, and I'm sure I looked sad enough. At times, the other boys had teased me about it, but, but not often. One night, I saw her. I was lying in that little bed Mother had made for me on the floor. I'd been asleep, but something woke me. I remember, I remember hearing the bells strike twelve in St. James' steeple. How slow they rang, how sad they sounded— and counting the strokes till I got to twelve, and knew it was midnight. Then I went to a window and I looked out. It was October, November, I, I don't remember which, but, but it was cold outside, so cold, and papers blowing down the street. It was cold in our lodging, too. I started to shiver, and thought I'd get back into bed, and, or else go sit by what was left of our little fire. It was, it was coal I'd found, you know, sir, in the alleys. The, the colliers' carts would come and unload coal down them chutes into the coal cellars of the houses, and sometimes some would spill. It wasn't stealing. Nobody wanted it but me. I'd pick up whatever pieces there were, and I'd put them in my pockets to take home. Anyway, I turned around to go to the fire, and there she was. Oh, she was beautiful, sir, and licked her lips as if she were hungry. Those are the things I recall best. I'd seen beautiful ladies before, going into, into shops, coming out, sometimes in the one where my mother used to clerk, well, only they never did look hungry, as this one did. She had a bonnet with black ribbons flying off it and a big, wide skirt. Yes, sir, a crinoline. That's what they call them. 
She went into the bedroom, and I got back into bed and pretended to sleep. I would have liked to close my eyes as well, to close them completely. You know, sir, I could not. Each time I tried, I felt she was bending over me, about to do something terrible. I had to keep them open, just a little. When she came out, she didn't look hungry any more, or so it seemed to me she didn't. She glanced at me and smiled, perhaps because she'd seen I was awake. Her face looked flushed, I thought, as a lady's will if she sits too near a fire. In the morning, I tried to believe it was a dream. I tried so hard and so often that there were times when I nearly believed it myself, but in my heart, I knew it wasn't true. My father died. One day it seemed as if he were recovering. The next he was dead. Death takes people so sometimes. I know that. We sold the furniture to bury him and had no table or chairs after. And my mother slept on the floor, sir, just, just as I'd been doing all along. I'd go to the neighbors, trying not to go to anyone too often and ask for a little bite to eat. I like to say now that I brought it back to mother, but, and we ate it together. But it wouldn't be true. I ate there so they could see me, and sometimes I ate it all. But when I could, I brought some back and told her I'd already eaten, which was true. The old man and his wife had us to dinner, too, most Thursdays, which, which helped a lot. One day, I was out in the street with some other boys. There was one who stole apples sometimes from the stalls. I'd been trying to get him to tell me about it, how to, how to do it without being caught, you know, sir, for it would have killed my mother. I said so, and, and George Peters said that there had been a lady in our house who had killed herself already years and years ago, poisoned herself, he said. Some of the others said no, no, it was her husband who murdered her, and her body was never found. Only they hanged him for it anyway, is what they said. Then another says, he'd buried her in the cellar, and they found her there, and that was why they hanged him. I said, what'd she look like? And they all said, she was beautiful, though there wasn't even one who had seen her himself then. After that, I went into the cellar and looked. I had a stub of a candle, you know, and when I went down to the cellar, it seemed quite ordinary. There were dusty boxes, some old shelves with rubbish on them. Well, that was all. Only that night, as I lay in bed, it seemed to me I had intended to look behind one particular box and had forgotten about it before I did. It bothered me so much I, I couldn't sleep, sir. So I got up and I lit my candle stub at the fire and I went back down. Oh, it was different at night. I knew that right away. Bigger, somehow. The air was different. I went down the steps anyway, though I was very frightened. It was hard to make myself do it, but, but I did. And I walked over to the box that I had been thinking about when I ought to have slept, and I peered behind it. There was nothing there. And when I saw there wasn't, I felt wonderful. But when I turned round to go back up to my bed... There was a grave, a deep one, 
in the middle of the cellar floor. It hadn't been there before, sir. I know it hadn't, for I couldn't have missed it. I suppose I went over to look in, though I have never remembered going there. But I did, and I crouched and held my candle stub down to look down deep, and there she was. I stared and stared until she opened her eyes and saw me. Oh, I knew what I ought to do, sir. I ought to have got a stake and stake her down. But I could not face it. I was that afraid. Yellow is what Jack would say. I'm shamed now. Shamed to own myself a coward, but I slept with my mother that night. "'and I trembled at every little sound. "'In the morning I thought I would find something for us to eat, "'and afterwards find a steak and borrow a mallet to drive it with. "'But when I came back with some crusts a kind lady had given me, "'mother was dead. "'I wept and told the old woman downstairs why, and she said, I must tell the beadle, and he would see to the burial. So I did, and he did, but he took an unconscionably long time about it, sir. I ate those crusts while waiting for her grave to be dug. I remember that. They had been hers, and my plan had been to throw him into the grave after the coffin was put in. Only, only I ate them instead. "'and I'll not forgive myself for it. "'The street lamps were lit by the time I got back home, "'but there were still boys in the street, boys I knew, mostly. "'They wanted to talk and said they were sorry, "'and had I touched her after she was dead. "'I was trying to get past them, for for I didn't want to talk. "'When the lady I had seen in the grave "'come out of the house just like she lived there, She had a parasol and that gown we spoke of, sir, and she looked ever so lovely. I froze when I saw her. I couldn't have moved or spoken for anything. And she bent down and kissed me right there on the street and said, Poor, poor child. Then she was gone. I blinked, you know, and looked round at the other boys, saw they was envious. It was the strangest thing, sir. But they were. They wished they had been me, every one of them. I felt proud when I saw it, proud and bad at the same time. Before long, Bob Perkins said, "'She ain't a dab beauty, is she? Oh, no, not a bit of it.' "'And a dozen more started talking the same. "'I couldn't believe it. I just could not, sir. "'I wanted to be gone from the green that moment. "'Then George, he said, "'Had a spot of tallow on her bodice, though. "'Candle-dripped, I reckon.' "'Tommy fell silent after he told me that. I'd give him the sausage in the hope it would persuade him to open up a bit more, but it was to no avail. He said, Thank you, Mr. Fagan, as nice as you please. But that was all. 
When he had finished it, he wiped his hands on my hearth rug, as boys will, went outside to rejoin Jack Dawkins. He has been taken now, poor Tommy has, and transported, as we hear. His tale has remained with me, however. Thus, I set it down. There you go again, Larry Jean. Ho ho, thank you so much. Links to all sites will be on the front of the website. So that is Oral Delights, show number 60. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you will do call again. And don't forget, if you want to kind of support the old Starship Sova, keep this bird flying high, monthly donations, you know, if you want to kind of sign up for that, where you get the private sanatorium show, that would be fantastic. It just helps to support this. If even it's just one-off donation, that would be amazing. Spread the word of the Starship Sova. She's coming to a town near you. Until next week, I would just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Of that duration procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.